Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, Real Men Aren't Real, let's talk to some guys who are reclaiming their souls. For most men, being male is a prison for the soul. As babies, boys cry and get comforted, but at some point, crying, touching, and seeking comfort is no longer allowed. The fear of looking like a girl becomes dominant. The world expects boys to transition from real humans to machines, who are no longer supposed to flinch. They're expected to be tough, to be providers and protectors, girding their loins to go into the mines, factories, corporations, boxing rings, and wars. If they don't, they are humiliated. And they're supposed to know all the answers, too. But this time, they don't even know who they are, because socialization has forced them to bury their natures. Today, we interview three guys from Interrevolutionary Men. They'll be sharing their experiences as well as their struggle to become themselves. Discover men who are gathering to help one another and young boys throw off their bondage. Gay, straight, and trans are all invited, and women are invited to listen, too. And now, here's Beth. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our show today. Well, this is the good, the bad, and the ugly, isn't it? I mean... Uh, there's such a sad history for men on so many levels, and here's a bunch of guys who are trying to do something about it, and there's a lot of men on our planet who are trying. But we have some news of the uh, inner revolution, uh, which is not so positive, but we are getting to see the problem. We get to see the problem, (laughs) and we're also going to be seeing the solutions. So let me remind you, everybody, that Inner Revolutionary Radio is about the Inner Revolution, which is a movement of us to become conscious in a different way, to really start acting out of oneness, and we start being accountable for our behavior, and we become mutually supportive, and boy, would that ever change the world. And also, I would like to welcome... Uh, our latest Pacifica affiliate in Columbus, Ohio. Yay! Welcome, hey. welcome. We're so happy to have you. Okay. James. Okay. Take it away with the news. For those of you who are new to our show, we always start with the news of the inner revolution, which is either giving us great news about how the inner revolution is happening or a sort of bad news, which is how it isn't happening and why it still needs to. So, <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So today we're going to be focusing our show on the socialization of men. And I can't wait to get into it with the other guys appearing with me. I'm one of the three. But first, we'd like to share a couple of related news stories that will get us in the mood. First, our listener, Tracy, sent us this news item she found on a Facebook site, A Mighty Girl, dated May the 14th. Tony Porter, an educator and activist who is internationally recognized for his efforts to end violence against women. I like it. I like it. (laughs) Stated in a recent TED Talk, I can remember speaking to a 12-year-old boy, a football player, and I asked him, how would you feel if, in front of all the players, the coach told you you were playing like a girl? Now, I expected him to say that I'd be sad, or I'd be mad, or I'd be angry or something. No, the boy said to me, it would destroy me. And I said to myself, if it would destroy him to be called a girl, what are we then teaching him about girls? In his talk, A Call to Men, Porter explores the social conditioning that he refers to as the man box, which can lead men to disrespect, mistreat, and abuse women and each other. We see that the man box includes a culture of violence that men are taught is normal, and it's a huge factor in men's treatment of one another, women, and children. Later, we'll be talking about 
how men's socialization hurts us men, including the encouragement of competitive violent sports, which destroy us physically. And some recent news about that includes more and more stories about deceased NFL sports stars who are being diagnosed with CTE, news of the NFL trying to subvert research into brain injuries, and the general manager of a major NFL team recently acknowledging that human beings weren't meant to play football. <laughs> Thank God. Catching up on this one. Now. Right. <laughs> but the physical impact on men is just one aspect of the harm of the man box. Since we'll be focused on the damage it causes us men during the show, let's first look at some recent news items about violence against women. Oh, you're going to hate this. <laughs> These stories embody the attitude that men automatically have the right to control women. These particular stories relate to the Middle East, but we have plenty here at home. On June 1st, USA Today reported that a Pakistani woman was burned to death for refusing a marriage proposal. The nerve. Yeah, really. Maria Sadakat, 19, a teacher, was attacked by a group of men Sunday for refusing a marriage proposal from a man twice her age. She was badly tortured and then burned alive and died. Such attacks are not uncommon in Pakistan. Nearly 1,100 women were killed last year by relatives who thought they had dishonored their families, the Human Rights Commission found, according to the BBC. In another ghastly story related to Pakistan, CNN reported on May the 28th that Pakistani men can beat wives lightly, the Islamic <laughs> Council says. Pakistani women can vote but should be lightly beaten if they defy their husband's commands, an Islamic council recommends. Now, you would love that, James, wouldn't you? <laughs> Stepford wives, where are you? <laughs> the Council of Islamic Ideology, or Idiotology, yeah. is a powerful constitutional body that advises the Pakistani legislature where laws are in line with the teachings of Islam. The council has proposed a bill to become law that, is in response to the rejected Punjab Women Protection Bill for abused women. The council shunned Women Protection Bill as un-Islamic and wrote its own bill, which includes the recommendation for the light beating of a wife to instill fear in her if she defies her husband's commands. He would be allowed by law to beat her if she refuses to dress up as per his desires, her turns down demand of intercourse without any religious excuse, <laughs> does not take a bath after intercourse or menstrual periods, does not wear a hijab if she interacts with strangers, speaks too loudly, or gives cash, other people cash without her husband's permission. These religious men have given, the, given themselves the right to give men, in general, the right to control women. It's a true perversion of the purpose of religion and the exploitation of social power to enforce the oppression of 50% of the population. And, you know, uh, we had a great interview, two of them, as a matter of fact, with Ani Zonefeld from Muslims uh, for Progressive Values. And, um, you know, this is not Islam. This is men using religion in order to control women. So there it is. Uh, it's a worldwide situation, isn't it? Yes. Uh, none of that is in the Quran. No. Nonetheless, uh, <laughs> since, since that time, male legal scholars have decided that this is the way it's supposed to be. 
Okay. The culture of violence and control of women is also apparent in this final grim story reported by CNN on June the 1st. Egyptian teenager dies during illegal genital mutilation surgery, official says. 17-year-old Mayar Mohammed Musa died when a registered doctor performed mutilation to remove her clitoris. It is a common procedure known as female genital mutilation, FGM. The practice has been illegal in Egypt since 2008, but remains a strong tradition in Egyptian society where families are cutting as a way to calm or purify young girls. 92% of married Egyptian women aged 15 to 49 have been subjected to FGM, according to a recent government report. Even more alarmingly, 82% of female circumcisions in Egypt are performed by trained medical personnel. Amazing. The United Nations in Egypt stated, there is still a long way to go to eliminate this harmful practice that violates the rights of women and girls. There is no moral, religious, or health reason to cut or mutilate any girl or woman. FGM can cause lifelong physical and emotional trauma for the millions of women forced each year to undergo the procedure. Quote, criminalization isn't enough, said Dalia Abdelhamid the Gender and Women's Rights Officer at the Egyptian Initiative for Personal Rights. The national campaigns have to confront the root causes that propel the families to circumcise their daughters in hopes of controlling their sexual desires. Yes, women's sexual desires need to be controlled, even though (laughs) men are disproportionately the sexual aggressors. Amazing, amazing, (laughs) isn't it? Yes. We're going to be sharing the good news a little later as we men talk about how we're trying to counteract our male programming and break out of the man box. But let's end the news today with a victory of consciousness over tradition on an unrelated topic, just to remind us that positive change is happening in our world. This story was sent to us by Todd, assistant producer of our show, who will be joining us soon. The news comes from the Union of Concerned Scientists, and it was found on blog.ucsusa.org on May the 20th. Here's the cool title, Hard-Fought Battle Over Added Sugar Labeling at the FDA. Public Health 1, Food Industry 0. Yay! (laughs) For years, numerous nonprofit organizations and public health professionals have raised their concerns about the epidemic of sugar overload in our foods. Food companies and their trade associations have, however, opposed an FDA proposal for an added sugar declaration in food labeling. At the Partnership for a Healthier America Summit, First Lady Michelle Obama announced on May 20th the Food and Drug Administration's newest rule, which will require inclusion of an added sugars line separate from the total sugar line and a percent daily value for it on the nutrition facts label found on the back of all food packages. Prior to this, corporate influence had ensured that sugar-laden foods remained within easy reach of consumers, especially the most vulnerable ones, such as children and busy parents. And despite the mounting scientific evidence on the association of sugar overconsumption with tooth decay, weight gain, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular disease, most of the industry questioned the validity of the scientific evidence and the utility of the added sugar line on the label. The new label will make it easier for consumers to make better informed food choices. Manufacturers will need to use the new label by July the 26th, 2018. 
The FDA's new rules mark a big win for the scientific community, public health professionals, concerned individuals and families, and their right to know. Beth? Well, the whole subject of sugar really gets me going. (laughs) Because, you know, in addition to all the public health problems that were addressed in this article, I mean... Sugar makes people nervous and crazy. It, uh, it, it really, really uh, it contributes to ADD in children. Uh, and it leaches minerals from our bones. I mean, it's, it's got so many downsides. As far as I'm concerned, there is no amount of sugar that really should be, you know, considered by human beings. Uh, you know, maybe like a drop, a sprinkle here or there, but it's also addictive. And, uh, I mean, and it was, uh, you know, one of the bases of the slave trade. So it has a bloody history in, in addition to that. And by the way, do you know that the British capitalists, during the Industrial Revolution, they were using tea and sugar to keep the workers working. See? <laughs> keep them right. Keep going. Keep going when your body really is saying, I need a rest, here. I need a rest. I mean, instead of letting workers have shorter hours, which, by the way, shows up as greater productivity, more rest and a healthier work environment, why don't we just give people sugar and caffeine? Throw in a few pills while we're at it. So anyway, that's enough uh, from me on the subject of sugar right now. But I'm glad to see that there is some consciousness around that. And, you know, even these hideous stories about, you know, the women in Pakistan and, um, you know, with, and the f- uh, female genital mutilation, there are movements of people that are really fighting it, including men who are saying this is reprehensible and there is a, a lot of shifting in the consciousness of men on this planet, thank God. And it isn't because women are the victims, it's because we are all the victims. And that is the cool thing about our show today. We are going to have on three guys. One is your, where our very own James Maynard. Say hello to the audience, James. Hello, hello. Two, we have... Todd Benton, who is our assistant producer, who hardly ever gets to be on this side of the microphone. Hello, hello. And third, and not least, is Richard DeSanto, who is another inner revolutionary man who listens to our radio show. Hello, everyone. Okay. So these guys are in a <clears throat> uh, group called Inner Revolutionary Men, and uh, we uh, have some really, really good guys who are trying to change what's going on among men and the socialization and are, are willing to talk openly and honestly about how all this macho business is really hurting them. Aren't we having a workshop soon? Or is that, uh, have we already done, about real men? Or is that, that's the radio show. <laughs> <laughs> real men aren't real, right? Wasn't that the name of our radio show today? And we've yes. done workshops on that, and we will continue to do that, men's workshops. So, uh, well, By the way, we do have a workshop coming up in July. Yeah. Todd, Todd, do you have that information? Yeah, it's July 24th from 9.30 a.m. to 2 p.m. And it's available you know, online through uh, web conferencing. And we have more about it on our website. If you go to theinnerrevolution.org and go to uh, upcoming 
events, uh, then you'll see and learn all about it. This particular workshop is called Men Taking Charge of Our Sexuality. Good idea. What? Do that instead of just mutilating the women? So. <laughs> instead of raping and molesting. Right. I, and uh, <laughs> I think it's really great. I, I love these guys. Um, I think we should tell uh, the guys out there the horrific uh, truth, which is that Beth Green is the counselor who uh, <laughs> facilitates these workshops. And that's because I come in as an intuitive, which is what I do for a living, actually. I'm an intuitive. And I work with people and bring things out. And actually, we have great... I'm not in the men's group, but I do lead the workshops, or I've been asked to do that uh, because we have some great discussions. And it actually, I think, adds a level of safety and neutrality to this because not only am I very perceptive because I've been given this God-given gift, which is sometimes a curse of actually being able to know what people are thinking and feeling and be able to bring it to the surface. But I think a lot of guys find it actually easier to talk to women. Who wants to comment on that? And you're not stuck in the man box like we have been. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and I am not stuck in the woman box either, believe me. So, uh, yeah. I'll talk about that because um, I think that I've felt that way my whole life because I didn't feel safe to talk to men about things that were, quote, off topic for men. You know, like feeling weak or feeling powerless or, I mean, who wants to talk to another man about feeling, you know, inadequate? Right. right. We're just like that's one of the things we've discovered in our men's group is that's like the anathema to say anything that would label you as, you know, feminine, girl, anything like that. So from the time we're very, very young, uh, that's just the message. You know, don't act, don't act like a girl, don't look like a girl, don't be anything like a girl. That's absolutely right. And, you know, we're very aware of the fact that there are so many gay men in our world, or transgender, and um, they are abused mm. because they are openly looking like females, or what our society determines is what a female looks like, and that is like considered to be the absolute scum of the earth. How many of you guys grew up with the fear of being thought of as feminine? I did. I did. Yeah, I had it too. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I just remember, because I I had a sensitivity, which I know is true now, but because I was sensitive to some things, I thought that that just made me call into question, you know, uh, that aspect of myself. And I remember... This is like when I was a teenager, so, you know, and I'm 69 today, so this happened a long time ago, but I remember I was working a part-time job and as an usher in a theater, and the assistant manager came up to me and put his arm around me just to talk with me, you know, like in a, in a confiding kind of way, and yeah. it, just made, it just made me really uncomfortable. I just, you know, so that, that was probably more of my own homophobia, but mm-hmm. I, I just recall that vividly yeah that's a frightening thing to think that um anytime a man wants to touch you that somehow you're oh you're assuming that there's something behind that exactly yeah it it, it you know it kept me on guard there i couldn't relax 
really. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it, it just made it harder, like Todd was saying, to to really genuinely communicate about friends. I don't think I ever communicated about you know, when I was growing up to uh, buddies or male friends how I genuinely felt, you know, about feeling inadequate or uncertain or confused or anything that didn't resonate with, you know, some kind of power that was off limits. And so what did you do with those feelings? Uh, I stuffed them and uh, became alcoholic uh, as a way to deal with a lot of the inner conflict that I felt because, you know, I, I think, I mean, I, I've been sober for quite a while, and so just looking back on it, I can just see how all of those underlying feelings contributed to my own feelings of being different and not connecting with other people and the fear of not connecting, uh, even though that is truly what I wanted. And alcohol was a way to escape from all of that. And, uh, you know, when I started to drink, I didn't start to drink to become alcoholic I just use it as an escape mm-hmm. but, but it turned into that and I know there was a show recently on on that as well the the impact of alcohol in our society so. yeah yeah yes uh, so uh, Todd what about you did you ever fear that you looked like a girl yeah, I mean, my dad was the, you know, the typical, the not typical, but like the poster child for macho man. <laughs> Shaved his head, flexed his muscles in the mirror. You're you know. kidding. I didn't no. know that. Shaved no, his yeah. head. Yeah. He well, you don't have to shave your head. No, I... I Self-shaving. Uh, <laughs> I know. Well, he was bald too, but at 36, he decided to start shaving. And I see, but it was also... Th- yeah, it was, it was macho. part of a persona. Yeah, it was definitely wow. part of a persona. And... um so I remember on the playground when I was, I don't know, maybe third grade, fourth grade, somewhere around there, some guy was, you know, beating me up and, uh, or wanting to beat me up. And my sister stepped in. <laughs> I really felt like a loser then, boy. Um, so I have a lot of the similar feelings to Richard, like it wasn't okay. But it's funny because as you were talking, I was thinking about the kind of man I thought I was, you know, like I... I grew up thinking I'm going to be the sensitive man that is caring, that is loving. But it's mm-hmm. it's just amazing how much of those um, undercurrents or the patterns or socialization that I learned in my own family carried out in my family, even though I didn't want it to, you know, or at least yeah. on the conscious level, how I would dominate, you know, my, my wife, compete with my kids, you know, um, all these things that I, I told myself I never would do that. You know, and then mm-hmm. here I am doing those very things that I, you know, detested my father's doing. You know, that's such an important statement that you're making, Todd, because I bet, uh, you know, a lot of the men out there who are listening will identify with that. Uh, well, we all kind of identify with, oh, I would never do that. You know, I'm going to be better than my right. parents. And, uh, you know, in some ways we may be, and in some ways we aren't. In some, some ways we're worse. But, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, when you have that patterning so ingrained that you're afraid you're going to look weak, especially if you had a macho father. I mean, having a macho father makes you feel like you have to look macho and at the same time it instills so much fear in you because you're afraid of your father. Yeah, I definitely was afraid of him. I mean, you know, again, spanking, 
you know, physical violence, all of that. So I was definitely, you know, from the very, I don't know, from my, as, as young as I can remember being afraid of him. Uh, now, James, what about you? Did you, did you confide in your father? No. Uh, he was not somebody. That was can... pretty emphatic, right there. <laughs> Did you hear that? It was like, he, he, no. he was he was the guy who administered corporal punishment. So I'm not. I didn't want to confide anything to him that might lead to more corporal punishment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, as my role model, um, he was a guy who uh, looked down on my mother and held her in judgment. And uh, so I came to be somebody who looked down on my mother and my sister, who was a year and a half older. And uh, I strove instead to satisfy, to try to uh, satisfy what I thought was um, what a man should be, what a boy should be. And so I became hyper competitive. I just tried to be a hero in sports. Uh, I was hyper competitive in every area of life academics, music, etc. And so uh, I was pushing away from uh, the feminine. And, and squeezing out any uh, revelations of any weaknesses because I wanted to compete. I wanted to be the best, and I didn't want to show any weaknesses or vulnerabilities. You know what struck me when you said you were looking down on your mother and your older sister? They were all bigger than you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I could just see this four-year-old looking, trying to look down. Oh, but um, you see, oh, but, but my mother was emotional, and that's a no-no. And oh, my right. sister, my sister uh, didn't make as good a grades as I did in school, and so hey, she wasn't as smart, and so there was something I could hang my hat on. Right to make yourself feel. So, what do you think was the turning point from when you became, uh, when you were a boy, to a machine? I mean, I, I, I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this question, but. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? In our introduction, we talked about, you know, little boys cry. It's normal. I mean, every infant cries. I'm not aware of any society that doesn't allow infant boys to cry when they're hungry and they need a bottle or, or a boob or whatever. So I, I'm not aware of that. I think that at least uh, that boys as infants are allowed to cry. Do, do any of you remember the magic moment when you suddenly stopped having feelings I think uh, this is something I heard from my mom. Um, I think it, for me it was around two or three years old. Um, I remember um, my mom telling me that um, uh, I was crying and my mom wanted to pick me up. And my dad says, don't pick him up. You'll make him a sissy. Oh, no. Yes. What? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, there it is. I mean, yeah. uh, it's not very deep or below the surface, is it? <laughs> no, no. And did she pick you up or did she listen to him? She listened to him. Of course, because he was the man. Right. And he could beat her lightly if she disobeyed him. <laughs> <laughs> God. That story just, oh my God. Didn't it turn yeah. your stomach? I, I know. It, it did, it, it really did. You oh. know, I just see these men sitting around, you know, congratulating themselves on their enlightened attitude uh, that men should only be allowed to uh, beat the women lightly, uh, you know, if they don't obey them. Like, where in God's name did God say that, uh, I mean... I'm not talking about the New Testament or St. Paul or any of that stuff. I mean, where did it come off that God, I don't remember that God created a man and then he made woman 
out of his rib in order to control her and have her make him dinner and serve him. I don't, I don't even remember that being in the... Anyway, don't let me get off on that topic. But it's, cert- it's certainly in the culture. I just read today that uh, uh, Donald Trump uh, stated that uh, uh, when he was married to one of his wives, uh, if he got home and dinner wasn't ready when he arrived, he would blow his stack. It's like he was entitled. He actually said that? He said that. <laughs> and he also said, uh, <laughs> working women are dangerous. Women he said this? Women shouldn't be working. He said that back in the 90s. Oh, I see. He wouldn't dare say that now because he's still trying to convince women that we should vote for him. Because he's going to be good for women, just like he's going to be good for Muslims and good for Mexicans and all of that. <laughs> so back, back to our socialization. So that's, that's an astounding story. Sometime when you were two or three, your father's already telling your mother that you are not allowed to cry anymore. So that's it. At that point, you had to become a machine. And what do you think happened to you and your feelings Todd oh it's you know uh, just be be phony you know don't pretend you know I think that's where I you know because you can't in a well everyone develops their own act right but mine was to be the good boy to be happy to put on a happy face so a lot of you know Pollyanna bullshit my whole life you know Mm -hmm. I think that was really the impact and I don't know if I made that decision in that moment or but that was one response I can see if I just look over my history going forward from that point yeah Um, and a lot of self um, condemnation questioning myself Mm -hmm. not really ever wanting to go deeply to explore what's really going on it was just you know you know a lot of pretense you know that's a very good point now you guys do you recall actually having the conscious awareness that you were feeling pain and not expressing it? Or did you just stuff it so that even you didn't notice? I, I think that I stuffed it uh, more than being aware of it, I think. I'm not absolutely certain, but just knowing, knowing how I've acted, you know, when the story that Todd just told made me think of uh, that I was probably a similar age when I understood that there, and maybe even younger, that there was this huge power imbalance in my family between my dad and my mother, and that my dad clearly was the one who had the power. And so even though emotionally I may have been a lot more resonant or connected with my mom, I still felt you know, the modeling and the pull to be more macho. And I would, I would never describe my dad as macho in what I think of as a real stereotypical or conventional way. I mean, he wasn't but, a biker. No, he wasn't a biker at all. He, he managed a factory in Chicago. But, he, you know, the, it's not just about that. It was about doing things a certain way and him making all of the decisions and that kind of thing, you know, and, and exerting his power. Yes, yes. Uh, what about you, James? Did you uh, were you aware of feelings that you stuffed, or did were you so stuffed that you didn't even know you were feeling? Well, I was aware of feeling fear, 
I was afraid of my father and of my mother because they would both belt me if I stepped out of line. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I came to fear men particularly and boys particularly because they were adversaries, they were competitors. So fear and anger, uh, of course, anger was the one and only acceptable emotion that I could be manly in expressing. And so I expressed a lot of anger over the course. So I was aware of the anger feelings and the fear feelings. Uh, pain was there, but I, uh, I stuffed it down and I, wouldn't, I didn't talk to anybody about it. Well, that seems to be a lot of what happens to men is that every feeling they have gets translated into anger because they don't get a palette of emotions that they're allowed to have. And, you know, this is not trivial. I don't know if there are some of you people out there are saying, who cares? Poor boys. They're, you know, they're the troublemakers. They're the ones who make, who cares about how they feel? Well, we better care about how they feel (laughs) because... That's, a, that's 50% of the human race right there, who, which happen to be still in greater positions of power. And the distortion of the human personality, the not allowing the palette of emotions, the not being able to process their feelings, has a huge impact. Um, you guys recently watched a film, which, we, uh, which I understand was really fabulous. And uh, James watched this film, and, it, and it, it, part of it was talking to some guys who had been murderers. And uh, he, what, what James reported that shocked him is that these were, right, these were people. You know, regular, these were regular, regular people, regular guys. Regular guys. Exactly. And, you know, and, and how did they get into that? So what, why don't you talk a little bit about that film because it's available on Netflix, and I don't know where else it's available, but you might want to look at it, people. And this is not a, just a show for men. This is for women to start understanding. And we women do a lot of the socialization of the sons. You know, we are yes. not, like, innocent in all of this. It's the same thing when you look at female genital mutilation or honor killings. I mean, the women are promoting or allowing this. These behaviors, I remember, you know, in China, when they used to wrap the feet of the girls, you know, the mothers were doing this because they were, they were so dominated by the society that they accepted this as normal. You know, you know there, oh, I just have to say this, and then I'll shut up and go back to the film. You know, there is this idea of cultural relativism, right? It's like you can't say anything about an Islamic society or an African society, or an Irish society, or whatever it is. We can't say anything about these things because that's a sign of racism. Uh, or it's cultural relativism. It's, this is their culture, and we have nothing to say. Uh, I don't believe that we shouldn't say anything. I think we do need to say something because the Chinese women had their feet bound, and that was considered normal. And there is nothing normal about deforming a woman's feet and there's nothing normal about wearing high heel shoes and there is nothing normal about cutting off a woman's clitoris for no reason except to control her desires and I just completely reject all of those arguments everybody who's oppressing anybody is not in the oneness and we are standing for oneness and as part of the inner revolution and treating people Badly and trying to control people and dominate them is not being in the oneness. And I'm going to fight that 
no matter what it looks like. And I don't care if I am accused of being a racist or whatever. You know, when I was friends with people in the Black Panther Party years and years ago, you know, if they were beating their women, believe me, they heard about it. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, poor black men, they have to be supported by letting their women dominate them. No, I mean, I, I don't accept that. And, and it's the same thing for men. I mean, you have a perfect right to speak up about what you see women doing and what you see each other doing because there are certain universal human values that we are supposed to be fighting for. So, um, you know, that's what's so great about this topic is that this male socialization of the male species, this sense of entitlement cuts men off from their true natures, makes them sick, turns them into addicts, turns their feelings into rage. They hurt each other. They're expected to be non-humans, go out in the football field and just suck it up. And that hurts them, it hurts women, and it hurts children. And so that needs to be said. Talking about children, so let's talk about that film that you saw recently. Sure. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Todd. Okay. Um, It's called The Mask You Live In, and uh, it really does uh, kind of chronicle the paradigms or the the kind of thoughts and the the whole uh, socialization of boys and and girls. Um, It you know more focuses on boys, but it it really focuses on the whole sexualization. Um, it's it's just really a fantastic film because it it really puts you face to face with um, you know how we how we come to be men and the the idea of what a man is supposed to be in this culture and not just in our culture internationally yeah. I mean you look at these guys in ISIS and you think what is going on with these men you know how were they raised. What yeah. makes them have such a need for control? And what's, what is that need for violence? I mean, this is not an accident. You know, it's, I know that men have more testosterone than women and all of that. But just listening to the stories that you're sharing and also what you see in this movie, it's heartbreaking because you can see that it's beaten out of men to be their full selves. They have to only have certain aspects of themselves that, uh, that are being uh, emphasized. As that gets taken out, because, oh, uh, you're going to be a sissy, you're going to be a pansy, you're going to be gay. I mean, like there's anything wrong with that? Excuse me, right? But, mm-hmm. um, you know, so this need to be a, a non-person, it's not even a half a person. It's really a non-person because you're not your full self. This is, you know, so much behind the aggressiveness uh, in uh, of war, uh, you know, it's well known that when women are involved in a peace process, there's more likelihood that there's going to be some peace. And it doesn't mean that women are better. It means that we are socialized differently. And in some ways, that's pathetic because we're socialized to be nice. Hmm. You, yeah, you right. guys were recently in a uh, a school uh, situation and. You saw that, you know, the, the boys and girls were each told what was some of their best qualities. And I, it, it was reported to me that the girls were complimented for being nice and the boys were complimented for being athletic or adventurous. And it's like, hello, you know, n- none of us is being our true selves. 
we're none of us allowed to be real. But I think that's even worse for boys. I think it's it's okay. It's a lot more okay to be a tomboy than yes. it is to be a sissy. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of the things I wanted to share that I got from the movie there was how incredible the peer pressure is for a boy growing up from other boys. Yeah. The boys enforce this image that you can't be like a girl, you can't be sissy, you can't express your feelings. Uh, and you really hear about it from the other boys. You get bullied or you get made fun of. And so uh, in the film, they show over and over and over how boys change their personalities as they move through elementary school toward middle school, toward high school. By the time they hit 12 years old, they have squeezed out most of those emotions into fitting the image of what it is to be a boy to be male, to be a man. And I just wanted to share something else that came out of, uh, from the, the movie. 90% of homicides are by men. Because they repress their feelings, uh, but at the same time, they're taught that they're, when they're disrespected, uh, they are entitled to retaliate aggressively. And, uh, and this, I think, supports a lot of the violence that uh, males perpetrate in society. Yeah, as you were talking uh, just a moment ago, Beth, about the, you know, what you were sharing, I was thinking of the shooting at UCLA yesterday, you know, mm-hmm. that that is the impact, that's the outcome of men being raised in this way. Yeah. Absolutely, that is such a good point, you know, we think that gun violence is caused by guns, and by the way, I do think it's insane the way we handle guns in our society, so I'm not saying we should have guns at every, you know, uh, a chicken in every pot and a gun in every holster, but, <laughs> but it's also true, I mean, it is equally true that the way men are raised, it, it really feeds this they have to constantly prove themselves. So what are you going to do? You know, your neighbor comes over and he's, he's uh, you know, parking, uh, you know, in, in part of your parking space, right? <laughs> and uh, you are, you know, because in order to be a man, you have to get that neighbor to move his car. I mean, that's yeah. enough of a reason to shoot him, isn't it? <laughs> Seems like it today, Jesus. It, well, you know, it does. It does. Yeah. But because what that is is that if you let that neighbor leave his car in your driveway, then you are a sissy. Yeah. Richard. You know what? I, well, what I was struck by, there was a lot of things that, that the film brought my awareness to. And it, at a couple points, you know, it brought me to tears because it was so sad and I could see the devastation. And Todd has mentioned this before, but there, there and maybe James has too, but there was this scene uh, that went on for several minutes where there was this uh, young African-American teacher who was working with what I would describe, and I th- maybe even this, the film described him as urban inner city kids. And, you know, and they were talking about how they were really feeling and what they expressed in their lives was anger. But what was underneath that anger was just a lot of pain about the, some of the same things that we're talking about here, you know. So it, it yeah. and I, and I, what was so moving about that experience is that it's, you know, this is, well, I guess the film was made a year or two ago, so it's very current, you know, so, and we're of a different generation than that, but it's, it still goes on. It's still so prevalent in our culture. And I really think that's, that's part of our mission 
as part of the interrevolutionary men is to find and learn ways that we can build trust with each other and relate in nonviolent, supportive ways, and then hopefully spread that to other men so that that becomes more the culture than the current culture that we have. That is such an important point, uh, Richard. And uh, dealing with kids, I know that Richard and Todd are both involved in another program of the interrevolution.org, which is our Unleashing the Power of Kids campaign. And, you know, you're going now even into the schools and trying to communicate with kids. And, you know, when you get right down to it, the boys, the girls, they're all people, you know, as they, they have feelings. And didn't it just touch your heart to see how neat, needy uh, these kids are and how little support they're really getting in our world? Yes. Yes, and especially the need for connection and yes. love and just, you know, bond, human connection. And uh, I, I think it's good at this point to, to mention there's recently, there's a new book out. I can't remember what it's called, but it, it says that beyond academics, to be successful in school, the kids need that. They need that kind of connection. So mm. it's really validating what we're seeing and what we're doing. So it's very exciting time right now to be able to, to work on these things and have the research behind us that supports, you know, everyone wants to have some research-based thing. And so there is research that shows that connection helps kids to become a more well-rounded uh, and healthier person on all levels. Right, which helps them with their performance and their schooling. I mean, it's like people have needs. You take kids who are poor and who are hungry and expect them to be focused on uh, their scholastic achievement, right? Well, same thing if, you know, the kid's afraid of going home that he's going to get beaten by a parent or is going to get abused or is going to be sexually abused. I mean, how well are those kids going to be performing in school? When are we going to start facing the reality that our entire society and not not even speaking about the rest of the world is full of people who are not getting their needs met on a fundamental level. Yeah. And, and, spe- and speaking yeah. of that too, I'd just like to say that on a deeper psychological level, I found in my own experience that I got programmed and socialized away from who I really am because I was trying to live up to the, the a male image and the image in society of what a man is supposed to do and be. And so uh, over the course of my teen years and through college and so on, uh, instead what I did was I went on a track to go into a career, to compete, make money, be successful in the eyes of society, to be a man. And the result was I lost myself in the process for many, many years. I'm glad you brought that up, James, because a lot of what's going on in our world today is that men can no longer fulfill the male image of being the provider because so many uh, families, they depend on both incomes, the women's and the man's, or sometimes there is only one person in that family, you know. Uh, so gay, straight, whatever you are, the uh, it's difficult to live up to that image of being the provider for so many people the economy is designed for the money to drift up to the top and so what happens to those so-called male wage earners when i was growing up we had the same nonsense 
But they would say that, oh, well, men should make more money because they're supporting families. Or the man should get the job because the man is supporting a family. It's like women didn't do that, right? But And it wasn't about the value of our work. It's about that men are supposed to be the providers. And how are you going to keep up that structure of making the man look like he's the puffed up, you know, provider if you don't allow him to make more money than the woman? Well, whoever said we needed to keep that uh, paradigm that the man has to be the provider? You know, it's just like just because we've been doing it doesn't mean that it makes any sense. And, you know, we have this illusion that it's really getting so much better. I remember when the women's movement started and then the men's movement started. This was years ago, right? And in the 60s and so on, it's like, oh, men were becoming sensitive. Well, you know, I haven't seen that the number of molests and rapes and uh, the amount of violence and the drug addiction has been plummeting. Have you? So obviously it's, it's, it's still with us and it's still with us big time. How, who would like to tell us a little bit more about uh, interrevolutionary men and how to contact you if if guys are interested and what kind of services you offer and what's your what's what's your mission? Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. <laughs> maybe we right. can we, you can we, maybe we can share that responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll first say how you can find us, um, and we can say a little bit about what our mission is. We have a pretty long uh, mission statement, uh, more like a manifesto, if you will. But you can find it all at uh, innerrevolutionarymen.org. That is where we're found on the web, innerrevolutionarymen.org, and. Um, our, where our mission is, um, you know, a lot of what we've been saying today is to help me out here, guys. <laughs> you wanna, well, well the, the, go ahead, Richard. No, I was just going to say the mission is to come together with this awareness that we have and recognize that we've suffered a lot and that we are also in the process of wanting to move away from this kind of thinking and feeling and behavior. And if we are, we're able to do it on, you know, our small scale, then, and we have, and we are, then we think it's something that's teachable, that we can communicate to others, and we can challenge other men to look at their own behavior and to self-reflect. And do you still believe this? Do you really want to <laughs> right. that way? Is that how you wonder? I have a son who's 19, you know, and um, so I, I don't want him to act out the same way that I did when I was 19 because of the the stupid paradigms that I was raised in. And so, I, you know, there's there's lots of reasons like that. And then I'd like to add to that what we're trying to stretch into, which is more along the lines of, uh, oneness, being in connection and oneness with others instead yes. of se- separation and competition. Right. A- and also uh, being <clears throat> supportive instead of competitive, uh, helping each other because if we help each other, then everybody benefits. Uh, and to cultivate the sensitive, caring, sharing sides of ourselves. And then also be able for our actions, like Beth has talked about. Uh, Looking, looking and seeing what's like in our interrevolutionary news today, the impact that men have on others and each other, and to, to address that, speak to it, and try to change it. God bless you guys, and I hope that you reach a lot of little ones, because, you know, <laughs> that's, 
Well, that is so important, reaching the children, because look how hard you have to work to try to overcome these paradigms and these patterns of behavior that control you and make you feel, you know, the thing that gets me most when I listen to, to, you know, to men or I look into their hearts is how lonely they are. Absolutely. You know, they, they are... They're, they can't be close to each other. They're afraid of each other. And they're embarrassed by their dependence on women. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so there is no mutual support. And it's very, very lonely. And so, so you get to huff and puff and blow the house down. And that's the reward you get for a miserable, lonely life. Wow. <laughs> So anyway, uh, James, let's talk about next week, and then we'll come back and say goodbye to these guys. Okay, then. Next week's topic, are we falling for the myth of the middle, the sham of the middle class and middle management, how the ego divides and conquers? We keep hearing about the need to rebuild the middle class, and middle class is how we Americans like to see ourselves. We are proud that we're not just workers. We're better than that. We're middle class. This appeals to our egos. Now, here's another one. Many of us are aiming to become middle management. We don't want to be just workers. We want to be a step up, to have status. Why are these statuses a scam? Because middle class and middle management are the labels we are given so we don't get pissed off and join our peers and rebel. These titles appeal to our egos and block our oneness. What is middle class? Is middle class income really midway between poor and billionaire? I don't know. I don't think mine is. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> Are you anywhere between poor and, and billionaire? Well, I'm no. not in the middle. I'm not at the 500 million mark, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, is middle management a position of power, or is it a way to deprive us of unions and overtime while we haven't got nearly the power or security that those at the top give themselves? So, uh, next week, we interview two women who will talk with Beth about the unreality of the middle and how ego is blocking our power. So tune in. And now for a final word. Well, I really love uh, talking to guys who are willing to not only f- say these things, but to say it out loud. Because that is so important and that, you know, you have so much to overcome. Um, it's kind of sad. You know, it's not it that is. women don't have a horrible time. You know, women compete and do all of this stuff, but it's natural for women to go into a puppy pile and have mm-hmm. closeness and talk to their mm-hmm. friends. And I can't imagine what it would be like to just grow up and with that stone in your stomach all the time, just shut up, shut up, shut up, and go beat the hell out of the next guy. It's, you know, it's time for us to stop sending our children, our boys, to war. It's time to stop sending them into football and to other competitive games. It's, stop, it's time to stop expecting them to win and to have winning be the purpose of everything. You know, yes. it destroys them. And do yes. any of you, we have like a, a minute left is there anything well, that any of you would like to say? I, I would just like to thank you for this opportunity to voice what you know I was able to today because it just strengthens me in my resolve to continue forward and it validates how important it is, not just for me, but for future generations. Thank you. Thank you. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm totally with you, Richard. Yes, I agree as well. And, you know, uh, those of you who are listening to this show, 
you also have a responsibility to change the world. All you have to do, we're going to put this up on Facebook, is like the show and share it with others. Everybody needs to hear this. Please try to get young boys to start talking and thinking and nurture them to be real. Check out this men's group and God bless. Let's all try to do something to stop thinking of each other as the enemy. Men are not my enemies. They're my brothers. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.